Welcome to Mondays with Millie, a podcast about the past with real relevance to the present day. I'm your host, Phil Cristofaro, and in this podcast series, I interview my 89-year-old mother-in-law, Doreen, who I affectionately call Millie, about her ordinary life and the extraordinary events which influenced it. Millie has witnessed firsthand some incredible things across 10 decades. This is a personal history which gives us some perspective about life's triumphs and challenges. Welcome to season number three of Mondays with Millie. In episode one, we see another decade tick over. Millie, JC and Paul decide it's the right time for JC to adopt Paul. Not quite as easy as it sounds. Millie falls pregnant with Christopher and is encouraged by workmates to take thalidomide for morning sickness, a drug notorious for birth defects. Christopher dodges his first bullet and there are many more to come. A cancelled holiday narrowly avoids a deadly plane crash. And if all that isn't enough, World War III is a very real possibility as the Cuban Missile Crisis looms large on televisions in the family home. Please enjoy Episode 1, Season 3 of Mondays with Millie. And don't forget to join the Mondays with Millie Facebook page. If you're looking back at the 1950s, how would you characterise it, that decade? Uh, well, in a light-hearted way, really, because everything was opening up and the end of rationing and um, as, as much as anything else, the fact that all the lights were on, you know, street lighting and you didn't have to have blackout curtains, things like that. Um, but then, of course... There was the three-day week when uh, we had uh, only electricity uh, for three days. You know, they had these um, blackouts for electricity. So that was pretty difficult, and it was a very cold winter. But, I mean, in general, how would you characterise the 50s? Do you look back on the 1950s? Because, you know, it's funny, the 50s has, has this real retro thing at the moment. People... People love the fashion and, you know, there's, there's some, oh, te- yes. some TV shows on at the moment and, and oh, yeah, the 50s house. Everyone loves the 50s. So how do you look back on it? Fondly? Not so yes, fondly? Very, very fondly, yes. We had our own home again and there was the, the new fashions, the new look, you know. Christian Dior brought out the, the full skirts and everything and everyone wore petticoats and it was, um, yes, it was a very, very happy time, the 50s. 
apart from the fact that a lot of the young men were still emigrating. <laughs> yeah, off to Canada. <laughs> off to Canada, yes. The 1960s comes along uh, and you have, Paul is by this stage in primary school still. And well, you... Paul, yeah. yes. Um, yes, he was. Because he, he was, no, he wasn't in primary school. Yes, he was, sorry. Just about. Um, you see, he was born in 1951. So, by the t- and Christopher was born in 1961. The big thing was, uh, personally, was that Paul wanted to be adopted by John. And it was very difficult because because I'd been married to his father, we had to get his father's permission. Well, of course, he disappeared, which meant employing a private detective to find him. It actually took two years from when I married John to getting the adoption through. And then when we did find him, he didn't answer the solicitor's letter uh, with a form in which he had to sign. And he sent him two two forms and he didn't sign, didn't reply. And um, Paul was getting quite upset about this because when Christopher was born, of course, his name was Chapman and ours was Connolly. So the solicitor said, I don't think we can do any more. This guy doesn't want to sign this form. So I said, right, well, give me his address and give me a form and I will send it off to him, which I did. And I can't remember my exact words, but the gist of it was, uh, I do understand that you don't want to lose um, your son. So I'm going to go to court and ask for maintenance for him and also seven years back maintenance. I didn't know if it was I could get that or not, but that was the threat. And by return of post, the form came back signed. So so that was that. So you played hardball. Yes. And then we had this, of course, we had to go through the process of being screened. And this lady came from the, some adoption society and uh, she checked the house out and everything. And then she objected to the fact, oh, she said um, she thought it was uh, most unfair to his father for, for us to ask for adoption, which infuriated me. But of course, I kept, I kept that down, you know, kept calm. And she said um, she also didn't think the home was ideal because we had an old man living with us. Well, that made me even worse. My father was 65 then. He'd just retired. And he, fortunately, he didn't know about this because he was out. He used to take Christopher out in his pram every day, so he was out with the baby. And uh, so I just said to her, well, I'd like you to know that this old man that lives here has looked after me and my son all his life. He also provided the money to buy this house. And she just looked at me, you know, and sort of tutted. 
She said, well, I'm sorry, but I can't say that it's an ideal home. <laughs> so then we had to go to court, the family court, and the judge um, listened, and then he took Paul. Paul had to come with us because he was 10 years old by then, and he took him away into a, another room to talk to him, and he came back and he said, um, yes, this, this adoption is granted because this young man tells me it was all his idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that. But that was the big moment for us. <laughs> yeah. so, so he put his case forward. He did. <laughs> wow. That, that's pretty brave and that's pretty mature for a 10-year-old. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, do you, did that surprise you? Was that in Paul, did you think? Or did it really sort of come as a... Well, no, Paul, Paul was the one who, he, he got quite upset soon after we were married because he'd said something at school about um, his father, meaning John, of course, and the teacher said, you mean your stepfather? And he was terribly upset about this. And I was, of course, I was very cross about it. I did write a letter to the school and object to that, but anyway... You used to get the odd people, you know, not thinking about what children were thinking. And it was upsetting and I thought it was unnecessary. So that's when he said, you know, can I not be adopted and be called Connolly? <laughs> so there we are. Do you think people in those days were more judgmental than they are now? I get this feeling that they were. Yes. Oh, yes, they were. They were very judgmental about lots of things, about um, about divorce, about gay people, about single mothers. Um, yes, they were very judgmental and quite cruel at times. Oh, imagine. And, you know, I, I think people often look back fondly into the past that they forget there were some unpleasant things about the way people were. Do you do you think that's a, a fair? Yes, I think that's yes, I think that's a fair statement. So, Paul's around the age of ten. Christopher comes along. And yes. Had, and what's Paul's reaction to having a brother? Oh, thrilled! Absolutely thrilled to bits. Paul, <clears throat> Christopher was born at home. and um, Oh, really? The, the, I didn't know that. Yeah, yes, he was. It was a real performance because Aunt Lizzie arrived the night before and I said, you're a week too early, Aunt Lizzie. And she said, oh, no, I don't think so. And blow me the following day that <laughs> he was born. Um, so um, I think she was a bit of a witch, you know. Anyway, uh, my father took, uh, Paul and uh, Michael, my nephew, off to the pictures to get them out of the way. And then he left them there. He was going to go and collect them when the film finished. And half an hour later, he opened the back door and Paul was sat on the back doorstep. And he, he didn't stay. He didn't want to stay and watch the picture. He, he came home he, uh, waiting for this baby to arrive. You know, he was so thrilled, absolutely thrilled. With him. Why 
why did you have Chris at home? Did you just did it happen too suddenly and you couldn't make it? I was a scary cat because ten years before I had a pretty awful time in the hospital. Nothing physical, nothing wrong with the birth. It was just that they the sister in charge terrified me. She terrified everybody. I believe later she went to be a warden at the women's prison in Manchester, so that gives you an idea of what she was like. And uh, I was terrified of her. And uh, yes, so much so that Paul was born in the middle of a ward on a Sunday afternoon while all the visitors were there with just a screen round me because she told me I had to open my mouth and um, upset the visitors. So I dared to open my mouth till the baby was born. <laughs> so it was really, but you know, that's absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely terrified. So and she called me a stupid girl, and that. So I thought, no, I'm not going back in there. And uh, so it was. It was very good. So did a midwife come to the house to assist? Yes, eight o'clock in the morning followed by an ambulance which brought, which brought the gas and air, et cetera, and all the deep bits and pieces. And, of course, my doctor, I'd, I hadn't gone to a clinic. I'd gone to, my doctor had his own clinic. And um, he was worried because he thought I'd taken the thalidomide tablets because I'd been, you know, morning sickness and that. And I had been given some of these tablets by one of the girls who worked at the Mullards that where I was working this factory, and she gave me these tablets. You see, but I, I showed them my father, and he said, "I want you to promise me you won't take anything until the following day." I was going to see the doctor in the morning. You see, and he said, "I want you to promise you won't take anything until you show them to Doctor Page," which I did, and he threw them in the bin and said, you mustn't take anything that I don't give you. But at the back of his mind, he was thinking, I wonder if she has. Anyway, he, he'd left instructions that he had to be notified as soon as the baby was born. And uh, he came through the day a couple of times to check on me, and nothing had happened, you know. And then eventually at tea time, when Christopher was born, uh, the nurse rang him and he came straight away and examined the baby, and he said... Uh, you were a very good girl, he said. I, I was a bit worried you'd taken those tablets. Well, I didn't know at the time how serious it was. But two of the girls who were pregnant at the same time as me, who worked at Mullard's, they both had badly deformed children. Concern over the tragic effects of the new sedative thalidomide prompts President Kennedy at his press conference to call for stronger, better administered drug laws. Now, the Food and Drug Administration have had uh, nearly 200 people uh, working on this. Every doctor, every hospital, every nurse have been notified. Uh, every uh, woman uh, uh, in this country, I think, uh, must be aware that it's most important that they check their medicine cabinet and that they, uh, do, not, uh, that they do not take this drug. It was very, very bad. So... The the connection hadn't made, been made at that point about thalidomide. No, well, it hadn't been made public. But Dr. Page had had his reservations. He'd, he'd, he'd heard about things and, yeah, and some of the doctors had, but some of the doctors were still giving these tablets out, you see. 
It's unbelievable, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Dodged the bullet, yes. So so that was twice he, he was lucky, really, because I think I told you that we, we should have been on holiday, but for the fact that I, did I, I told you about the plane crash in in the... Did I tell you about the plane crash in Spain? No. Well, my father always took the children to Butlins, uh, the grandchildren, in July. So he said to John and I, this was in the January after we were married the previous March, and he said, look, you two go off and have a holiday on your own. So I said to Paul, do you want to come to Spain or, or Butlins? And he said, oh, I'm going to Butlins. So we booked to go on this holiday to Spain and it was it was a, a special all-in holiday and um, we uh, about a month later we booked very early in the year because in those days if you wanted a July holiday you had to book in February you know so about a month after we booked I realized I was pregnant so <clears throat> The, the friend of ours who worked in the, in the um, travel agent, he said, oh, don't worry, I can, I can give you a deposit back. I can easily sell these seats. So that's what happened. And when they went on that holiday, the plane crashed flying into Perpignan and everybody was killed on that plane. And Joe... His name was Joe Jolly, and he said to us that you're carrying a very lucky baby there, Doreen, because I sold your seats to a mother and daughter from Bispam. And there were a lot of local people on that plane. Mm. 1962 comes along and we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, people were terrified. It, I don't think we will ever be as near to World War Three, because um, you see Cuba and Russia of course were very friendly and the Russians were sending the missiles to uh, to Cuba right on the borders of America. As expected the American Embassy in London was the target of two factions the pro-Russians, who were always good for a knock at the Americans, and the ban the bomb people. Petitions were delivered, protesting against the president's blockade of the approaches to Cuba. The CND members were declaring that nothing short of abolishing nuclear arms could prevent another world war. And there was a, a standoff between America and Russia. And really, I, I think most of the world held their breath at that time. We really thought, you know, we could be into World War Three again as soon as that. Terribly frightening. And of course, John F. Kennedy was, he, he really was quite brilliant. He held his nerve and uh, the Russians backed off. It's interesting, isn't it? So um, the world's holding its breath, similar to what it is at the moment, I guess. And leadership. What do you, qualities did you see in Kennedy, do you think? Well, you see, I think they thought he was fairly lightweight at first because his father 
hadn't been a very good friend to us. He was over here at the beginning of the war and he went back to America and said and told them that not to get involved, we were losers. We'd already lost it. We couldn't stand up to Germany and they shouldn't get involved. And they did held, hold off, of course, until Pearl Harbor. So he wasn't a friend of ours, the father at all. And, um, and for that reason, I think um, that reflected, our dislike of his father reflected on, on JF, you see, but um, he turned out to be quite a, a wonderful president. I'm sure he would have done a lot more had he not been assassinated. So a bit of a watershed moment for his leadership at that time, at least internationally. Um, yes. How long did this crisis sort of go on for and, and how did you stay abreast of it? But we didn't realise, of course, how serious it was, not at first. Um, did you have so a television? At this time, by this yes. time, yes, oh yes, yes, because um, I was a, I was able. Uh, we got, we got a television for the first time when I moved into my own home, and um, before that, we shared my brothers. You see, when we all lived together, um, but I got that at almost at cost price because I was employed by Mullards, and they made the Philips televisions. And the factory where I was um, uh, the welfare officer, personnel and welfare officer, um, they made all the valves for these and components for these televisions, you see. So so we had a, a quite a nice television. When you brings us to the end of episode one season three of Mondays with Millie. In episode two we get an early feel for life in the 1960s. JC has a job he likes but all that comes unstuck when politics intervenes and the family once again takes a left turn. Don't forget to join the Mondays with Millie Facebook group where I paste photos of Blackpool throughout each era. You'll find a link in the episode notes. Thanks for listening and we look forward to your company again next week. with Millie is an e-learn production editing and dodgy guitar work by yours truly Phil Cristofaro vocal work by Millie's granddaughter Neve.